From climate change to vaccines, some would say even to Brexit, there seems to be a worrying tendency amongst people to be willing to turn their backs on what seems like the objective truth. The anti-vaxxing movement has been pushed by Russian troll farms. The more doubt there is, the better it is for them. At its most dangerous, this phenomenon, which some people call denialism, can shade into extremism. That sense of any kind of shared evidence base is being hugely fractured, and, and that is very, very dangerous, I think. They are trying to cloak hatred in the language of reasonable science. You are fake news. Denialism is a fundamental rejection of reality, but what is it that drives it? What does it say about our psychology that we need to protect ourselves from what's really going on? And what should we do about the forces, online and otherwise, that seem to be driving more people to construct their own version of the truth? Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the forces driving us further apart and what should be done about them. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. This week, we're talking to Caroline Lucas of the Green Party about what drives climate change denial, and also to the sociologist Keith Kahn-Harris, who's going to give us his take on what drives people to reject the truth. But before we get started, we'd like to make sure you know what our assumptions are and where we're coming from before we dive into each episode's topic. Now, uh, this programme's about polarisation, and denialism can be seen to be part of that kind of polarisation. But I think, Ian, you've been reading something that doesn't just undermine the basis of this episode, but possibly the entire purpose of us getting together every couple of weeks. Yeah, so, so we better make sure that we, we, we talk it down. Um, there's an interesting <laughs> article by Tyler Cowan, the economist and blogger, uh, and, and somebody who is always worth reading. And this week he's written a, a typically thought-provoking column for Bloomberg, where he argues that actually America isn't as divided as it looks. And then he kind of applies the argument briefly to, to Britain and the Brexit debate as well. Basically, he's saying, OK, on certain issues, America is more polarised. So abortion, for example. Uh, for abortion. Gun control. Yeah, although even there, you know, it's always been polarised, mm. possibly more so. But, um, but on other issues... There's convergence. So actually, some issues are, are seeing polarisation. Some issues are seeing more convergence. His examples are on the tech industry. People, Republicans and Democrats, seem to be converging on, on the idea that it needs to be regulated further. He's also seeing some convergence in foreign policy. So actually, having been extremely hawkish about China, Trump is now you know relatively dovish and kind of looking for a deal, which is kind of where the, the, the Democrats would be... Anyway, you can actually see that in, in also in a way Trump's attitude to Afghanistan and ISIS has converged with the left of the Democrats, <laughs> you know, kind of let's let's get out of there, leave them alone. Um, in Britain, um, so he in, in Britain, he, he argues that, that you know, you know thing about Brexit is that it's not polarised between leave and main. It's just fragmented into lots of different positions, whether you want a kind of no deal hard Brexit or uh, something you want in uh, Norway or you want full on remain and so on um and actually if it was just simply polarized leave versus remain one side would have would have won out by now not totally convinced by that but i do think that in britain one of the interesting things you're seeing is much less polarization about around economic policy i, I don't think there's as much polarization around you know 
things like nationalisation or the kind of role of the state and so on. There are different views, and obviously there's a lot of argument about the whether the government's policy is right. But actually I'm seeing quite a lot of kind of... I don't know, I just feel like the heat has gone out of that debate. And it, there used to be a big argument about, about the kind of the power of, of the free markets and, and liberalisation versus the overweening kind of hand of the state. Don't really, there's not really energy from the right anymore on, on, that, on that subject. And there's the kind of a general agreement that, you know, post-financial crisis, you know, things, looks like things did get out of hand. So while we're more polarised, uh, uh, you know, as on, on the EU, we're, we're arguably less polarised on some of those social and economic issues. So I, I, I thought it was an interesting piece as well. And I, I, I've got two thoughts about it. Uh, one, the second, of which beautifully segues into uh, our focus on denialism. So the, the first point, I think, is that what this strikes me is that there is an emerging consensus in some areas. And the, where there is an emerging consensus, exactly as you said, Ian, it's around, uh, on the one hand, the left has kind of won the argument that the state does have a role in relation to markets. And, yeah. you know, uh, big tech can't just be allowed to get away with it. That's where the Republicans have converged with the Democrats. On the other hand, there does also seem to be a growing consensus, which is that globalization must be checked in some ways. And mm -hmm. so that's, as it were, where the liberal left has moved slightly more onto the kind of uh, nationalist agenda. But there's still very strong polarization around those kind of authoritarian kinds of questions. So this is the thing we keep coming back mm. to over and over again, that you've got these, that politics is a kind of two-by-two two matrix, that there's a kind of traditional left-right class-based, largely economic politics around redistribution, those kinds of things. And then there's this social authoritarian, social liberal axis. And I think what the article suggests to me is that there's a consensus at the top half of that matrix around the kind of economic and social agenda but there's still quite strong polarisation when it comes to issues like gun control or abortion, which or speak, immigration, yeah. or immigration, which speak to the other. Now, the second thing, though, that which which I think is interesting is if you're right, and of course I always tend to believe that you are in, but if you're right and Tyler's right, that there is more of a kind of convergence. Is it that the sense that we have a polarisation is to do with the fact that the extremes are just finding it easier and easier? to make a big noise and to be noticed than they were in the past. And that's one of the things that I want to talk about when we get into denialism is that there are structures, the internet is the most obvious one, but there are other things which mean that kind of opinions which previously we would have just thought were eccentric and, you know, maybe even unpleasant but not to worry about are now much more worrying because of the way in which they express themselves. So... On this question of denialism, to an extent also extremism, earlier this week I caught up with Carolina Lucas. She spoke at the RSA uh, and it was a speech that was looking at the relationship between democratic reform and climate change. She was talking about one of my particular enthusiasms, deliberative democracy. But after she'd given a talk, I, I moved the conversation on to this question of uh, denialism because, of course, if you are a environmentalist, you've been campaigning on climate change all your life, as Caroline has, you have often had to deal with well, people who say the entire thing is made up. What's your kind of view of climate denialism? You must have, over the years, had your post back full of people who write to you with crazy thoughts or email you, whatever, and say it's all a kind of conspiracy. H how do you understand it? How have you dealt with it? I suppose I've, I've understood it mostly to be the position of people who find it convenient to just put that aside so that they don't have to change, you know, the way they behave, essentially. So I think it's quite interesting to explore whether or not someone 
is denying something because they genuinely believe something isn't happening, and those who will adopt the language of denialism because it suits their purposes to carry on, for example, with with you know exploitation of fossil fuels or, or, mm. or whatever. I, I think what is most common are people who are using the language of denialism because it silences a debate. It means you don't have to answer certain questions and you can just focus on the on the bit of it that you care about. And, and now we live in a world where you can go onto Google and I'm not, I mean, I normally blame Google for things, but I wouldn't blame Google for this. And, you know, you'll probably find your second or third page of Google search for, you know, what's happening to the environment. Somebody who says nothing's going to happen to the environment at all, it's all absolutely fine. So denialists used to be kind of isolated, but now they're, they're, they can build communities quite quickly. They can, and that is incredibly dangerous. And it's also the case that quite a lot of us, unless we are Googling page three of, 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 of that issue, that we're not even going to know that's what's happening because so much of the information now is being tailored to certain groups or certain individuals even according to the algorithms of what they've mm. searched for before and so on. But that sense of any kind of shared evidence base is being hugely fractured and, and that is very, very dangerous, I think. And is there also, though, a kind of cultural dimension to it, which is that, you know, we associate environmentalism in Britain with the left. Um, and so, therefore, people who, who, who want to say it's a conspiracy can say, look, people talk about green issues because they're trying to smuggle in a socialist agenda. It's that, that's the way of doing it. That's why I'm kind of interested in what's happening in Germany, because in Germany you can see a kind of environmental movement which has got a much, much broader base, much harder to kind of do that too. So do you think that the part of this is about being able to stop people saying that the only reason you believe something is because, you're try- you know, because of your particular ideological perspective? And then in a sense, the wider the environmental appeal is, the, the more easy it is to deal with that assertion, which is, well, environmental is just an excuse for, for left-wing ideas through the back door, as it were. Um trying to just unpick all of the of the ideas in, in, in that. I mean, it's it, it wasn't so long ago that the Climate Change Act went through Parliament. It was only just 10 years ago, and it went through Parliament with only, I think, around three people who voted against it. So at that point, as recently as 10 years ago, there was a sufficient consensus across the different political parties that we needed pretty radical action, potentially, mm. when it came to that Climate Change Act. I think this thing that we're describing is something that is relatively recent. But why is that momentum not being retained? Because that's the difference. In Germany, it feels as though environmentalism is part of a national identity. And you, we had that moment 10 years ago when it felt like that might be where we were going. But not, not now. You, you, you were saying in the, in the lecture hall that Chukarumana's kind of description of the independent group's new vision for the centre. Well, you would have thought, new vision for the centre? Surely that's... Envir- yeah. And he hardly mentions the environment at all. How has it become so dissipated? Why, why is it hard to say that environmental is part of our national identity, do you think? I know it's easy to, to blame the media for a lot, but I, I do feel that because we don't have such a strongly focused media on these issues, it's been easier to compartmentalise environmental concerns as if they were the concerns of of just one part of society. And yet, again, almost arguing against myself, if you look at David Attenborough and his statements at the climate talks, I mean, he gave an extraordinary speech. He, our national treasure, someone you would never, you know, dream of saying was some kind of socialist stooge Mm. to, you know, to save your life. He he, he was talking about the potential for the end of civilization. As we know it, his campaign on plastics has been extraordinary because it has burst out of any kind of party political positioning and has spoken directly to the public with with those images that were so powerful of the very real effects of what we're doing. I think the problem with climate in particular is that although there are some effects that are 
so far, at least, usually in other countries, or if they are in our own country with flooding here, then we're overwhelmed by everybody telling us, you know, you must not make any direct linkage between one mm. specific weather event and climate change, and they're quite right to do that. But I almost feel we censor ourselves now in not making those connections, and so mm. people feel when it comes to climate that it's something that is so distant or so difficult to imagine even, whereas there was something about those images that David Attenborough was able to show in every sitting room up and down the country of, you know, fish not being able to, to, to breathe or, or mm. birds being completely, you know, I mean, their beaks stuck in razors and so forth, that, that, that struck people as an evident truth. So you weren't having to depend on a theory mm. or an algorithm or a calculation. Those images were there and there was no denying the cause and effect. So denialism can be kind of burst through with, with, with images, with stories, with narratives in a way where they can't be broken through with facts. We kind of know that, that facts I don't really work right. against denialism. I'm interested, though, as somebody who's obviously had to confront denialism because of your focus on the environment and because, in a sense, before Brexit, at least, we just said, well, the great obvious example of denialism is climate change. Now, there's a lot of denialism in Brexit, though, isn't there? There's a lot of people saying... I don't want to have to confront what this means. So this is not about whether you're in favour of or against it, but the kind of continual assertion that somehow there is something that can be grasped that is different to the reality and the choices that we face. And even this morning, Boris Johnson again saying, well, you know, it's possible to go and get a better deal with no real evidence for this. It's as if we all want to believe there is, well, a lot of people want to believe there is something else that is possible and not to face up to the nature of the choices we actually have? Yes, and I, I, I think that that comes from the, from the top down, to be honest. I mean, it's because you've got people who have the, the media reach of a Boris Johnson or an Ian Duncan Smith or, or whatever, who are, in my view, choosing to ignore the evidence to the contrary because their ideological um, wishes are, are, are towards a kind of deregulated, Singapore floating off the side of, of, of Europe. I mean, that is what they want. And they're just going to dismiss anything that challenges that as, as you know, fake news, for want of a, of a better phrase. But it isn't just them, is it? It isn't just them. I mean, the, but isn't it because of them, A lot of, them, of British though, people... Isn't it? Don't they give cover, though? I mean, British yes. people... Most people are, are busy trying just to get on with their lives. And if what they are hearing is, is people that they would be normally perhaps, you know predisposed to to respect and to believe mm. saying this stuff and then that's reinforced by what they're seeing on their facebook pages because mm. of the what we've just spoken about before really in the sense of the of the internet being a fairly ungoverned space and no one really knowing what what information is being pushed in one direction or another then that all of that self-reinforcement gives people permission to believe those things i have to say that the remain campaign in 2016 hasn't helped itself because because they they cried wolf so many times in terms of you know some of the mm. statements that were made about the impact of, of of leaving the EU, because that hasn't come to pass and because some of it was I think overstated mm. at the time, then you know people are believing that the wolf doesn't exist while they forget that the story actually was that in the end there was a wolf and the boy got eaten. So final final question, it, it feels to me from what you've said that you'd be pessimistic about the fact that denialism in various forms is likely to grow because it seems as though if you look at Trump, if you look at... Uh, uh, and this is, you know, this is on both sides of the debate, you know, the idea that we can all... It's only politicians saying, I could, you know, I could turn up in Brussels and suddenly get a great deal, which just seems to be a complete fiction. 
when you think of the web and the way in which denialists can get together on the web and propagate conspiracy theories, do you think that denialism is going to become an ever more present part of, of debate? Because more and more politicians will say, well, it seems to work. You can get away with it. I, I well, obviously, I, I hope not. And I, and I hope that um, we will find ways, you know, that have been already suggested by people like Damien Collins, who's the, the head of the Select Committee on, um, on, on Media and Sport and so forth, who've been looking at you know, the way in which the internet is this ungoverned space, and it wouldn't take that much if the political will were there to at least bring some of that under control so that you would have less propagation of, of, of entirely false prospectuses, if you, if, if you like, and at the very least you would know who was putting that information out there and then it wouldn't take too much to work out, you know, what agenda they, they might have. So I hope that we are going to be able to find a, a, a regulatory environment that reduces the risk that you're describing. But short of that, I think you, you are right that in a sense... We're just seeing day after day that people are able to say that black is white and, and, and entirely get away with it. And, and even when they're caught out, frankly, the, the shame that would have once been felt seems to be very short-lived. You know, people live to, mm. to fight another day and, and just shrug it off. Caroline, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. So to reflect on that conversation and also some really interesting writing he's done himself around the issue of denialism, we're joined by Keith Kahn Harris. He's, I'm delighted to say he's a sociologist, but he's also the author of Denial, the Unspeakable Truth. And I just have to say this to you, Keith, before we start, that um, Stan Cohen was my, one of my father's best friends. And that towards the end of his life, Stan Cohen wrote a wonderful book called Denial, as you know. He did. He spoke at the RSA, and I was... Uh, so that's a very fond memory that I, I have of that. And I've got that out of the way. Um, <laughs> just he was a sociologist big, bonding. Just there, a bit of sociologist bonding. On. Well, he was a big influence on me as well, and I, I had the chance to interview him for New Humanist magazine a few years before he died. But he left us of that analysis of Denial, which, which we'll come to in a second. But let's start off with, with Caroline. And I, I want to, to start off with... The suggestion that I made, which I suspect some listeners might find a bit controversial, so I want to push on that. I, I've suggested we t in the conversation with Caroline that Brexit could be seen as an example of denialism. What I mean by that is that it's still, I think, official Labour Party policy that were Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister, he'd be able to go to the European Union and get a much better deal. That's certainly Boris Johnson's continued position. I don't think many people think that there's much to that. Is that denialism or is it lying or is it just bog standard political tactic or i mean look they maybe they're right but not many people agree with them i'm interested do you, would you would you would you count that as denialism i think it's important not to overuse the term denialism or use it as a sort of polymorphous form of abuse um <laughs> but it's certainly true that there is sometimes a hazy line between what you call fr uh, bog standard political stuff and denialism. Certainly, it, it's part of the normal ebb and flow of politics to make often fairly outrageous and unsubstantiated claims, usually within fairly contained boundaries. And Brexit has challenged those boundaries, um, <laughs> to say the least. But what I think is interesting here is that in some respects, I've been struck by how in the last few weeks and months, Brexit, the pro-Brexit campaigners, or at least the hard Brexit, no-deal Brexiters, seem to have gone in 
almost the other direction from denialism in the sense that I've been very struck by the emergence of a discourse, not in all quarters, but in some quarters, from No Deal Brexiters saying, we will suffer for this, but we should still do it. Yeah. Now, that is not denialism. That is the opposite of denialism. What denialism about No Deal Brexit would be is that we'll do No Deal Brexit and there'll be no pain at all. I, d- I know it doesn't feel comforting, but it's probably a slightly comforting sign that there is a degree and only a degree of honesty in in the more extreme no-deal Brexiters that is starting to emerge. And is that simply because it's imminent? I mean, you know, you you can deny climate change knowing that you can continue to describe, you know, changing weather patterns as simply being a kind of uh, a blip. And probably you won't be proven absolutely wrong for 30 or 40 years if you were to say no deal is going to pass without any change at all, everything's going to be rosy the day after, you, you could look foolish within two weeks. So is it as simple as that? Well, it's tempting to say that, but let's not forget that also denialism has an incredible robustness to challenge even apparently the most obvious things. So flat earthers do exist. Oh, right. So the denialist position would be not just no deal won't harm us, but even if no deal led to the riots, the shops being empty... You know, planes not flying, they'd be kind of going, no, this isn't to do with no deal. This is something else that's happening or, yes, or whatever. Yes, that, that would be what denialism uh, would would be in that sort of particular so, case. So before we go any further, look, what is it? How, how do you define denialism as distinct from all the other things that are you know, lying, exaggerating, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think the most important thing to say is that I define denialism as distinct from denial, although clearly related to it. Denial is something that we all do. We all, to some extent, need to do it because we can't face the the harshness of reality all the time. Denial is basically not looking at something, not paying attention to something, or trying as hard as possible not to attend to something. And that can kind of be broken by the facts, or at least it's potentially open to be. Denialism is much more robust. It doesn't just ignore an inconvenient truth it tries to create an alternative truth, to try create sometimes even an alternative epistemology, an alternative way of seeing the world, an alternative form of scholarship, an alternative form of science even. So denialism is in a way presence where denial is absence. And I don't know how on earth you'd know this, but is it growing? It's sometimes said to be growing, but I argue in my book, apologies for the plug. No, no, that we- <laughs> <laughs> We're not paying you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, now you tell me. Um, <laughs> that denialism may be transitioning to what I call post-denialism. One of the things about denialism is that it attempts to create a kind of simulcra of sturdy scholarship. So creating institutions, academic conferences, academic journals, that kind of thing. Whereas post-denialism, which in many ways is a product of the social media age, is much less disciplined. It is less concerned with creating a, a sturdy alternative truth rather than simply spewing out, if you like, sometimes mutually exclusive alternative facts. Mm. So I would say that Donald Trump, for example, in his approach to climate change, is more post-denialist than he is denialist. A denialist would make consistent arguments throughout. A post-denialist will say whatever is uh, convenient for the time. And that's the kind of tactical 
uh, or strategic approach of, of the Putinist propagandists, isn't it? You, you just basically just spoil the discourse by throwing so much poison in there that, that, that everything becomes unbelievable. I think that's certainly true, yes. And one of the interesting things is that there's some evidence that the anti-vaxxing movement has been pushed or supported to some extent by Russian troll farms, not because Putin and Russia have any particular investment in the idea of, of vaccination so much as the idea that the more doubt there is, mm. uh, the more fogginess there is, the better it is for them. So this, I think, is, is fascinating, that the things that make us worried about this in the way that we might not have been worried about it in the past, and it seems to me that there are, there are three obvious reasons the first is that denialists can now get together. You know, they they would let's just talk about flat Earth because it's it's harmless as a sense. Flat Earthers could be dotted around the world being flat Earthish, and but when they can all get together, they can all meet on the internet. There's suddenly quite a lot of them, and then they can generate websites and they have can conferences. They can meet in person. So that's the first thing is that is that this enables organisation amongst denialists. The second is is the sense that there may be malevolent forces, exactly as Ian just said, you know, the Russians, that this isn't just kind of eccentricity, but it's people trying to undermine our confidence in the kind of liberal democratic order as a whole. There's that element. And then thirdly, as we've tragically seen in New Zealand, the sense that in a world where of random acts of violence, you know, we, I grew up in a world where terrorism was a terrible thing, but it was organised. And now there seem to be individuals who take crazy ideas, and the next thing we know, they're committing atrocities. So those three things, it seems to me, are what leads us to believe that denialism is not just a quaint eccentricity, but something we should be worried about. So so what you're pointing to in, in all three points is a kind of paradox, which is on the one hand, it's easier than ever for people with, shall we say, non-standard views to get together. And the flat earth community is the best example of that. The Flat Earth Society essentially died in the 60s and 70s. It was kept going for a long time, but basically it was floggy a dead horse. And Flat Earth theories were virtually dead, but they were revived in recent years because they could be, because you could just take the odd person and it, together, given that how many billion people there are in the world, you can create a, a reasonably substantial online community. Yet at the same time, there's also, and this is, comes back to the, what I say about post-denialism, there's also a weakening of discipline within that sort of community. And if you look at flat earth groups, what's fascinating about it is they don't really have, other than saying that the earth is not round, they don't necessarily have a consensus uh, about what the Earth really is. They're like lots of different factions about if it, if you know well, different shapes of the Earth. It, that's flat. the interesting thing. You would think they'd be factions, but they're actually quite mutually supportive. So right. what, what they like is the idea of people spinning out as many alternative theories right. as possible. So one of the ideas, one thing I came across on, and it's quite funny, but it's quite interesting too, is that there is a division within flat Earth world about whether other planets could exist. So I did see see someone saying, well, Mars exists. Mars is a planet, but the Earth is flat. Right. So you can see that there are multiple different things, and, and, and that's, that is actually a good thing for them. It creates productivity, but it doesn't create a standard consensus. You could see this also in 9-11 denialism, which, of course, happens just before social media, but certainly after the Internet was fully was well-established. 
And there, there is there's a consensus that the story, the official story, quote unquote, is wrong. But beyond that, there are a multiplicity of arguments, mm. uh, sometimes mutually contradictory arguments. But yet, the community, in a way, mm. comes out of that diversity. I mean, it's so. So they they offer a kind of deformed example of of. Uh liberal democracy within their own community. So they, within this, like, you know, deranged bubble, they're, they're actually conducting more civil disagreements than the rest of us are. Well, of course, there are internal conflicts just like there are everybody else. But I, that's one thing that that I have been struck by. Uh, I've always been struck by, even in things like Holocaust denial community, in some ways is that there is a great solidarity in opposing the official narrative, uh, even if you don't necessarily share what should have Mm. the same belief as what should replace the official narrative so what this reminds me keith a a, a bit of um you know the standard account of the first world war uh, and and why it was that so many people died in in such kind of pointless war and that's because in the first world war the technology of defense barbed wire and fixed machine guns was so much more effective than the technology of attack which was a rifle And in a sense, what you've got here is the reverse situation, which is that the technology of attack on objective truth is just much more lively, innovative, creative than the technology of defense, which is the attempt of the establishment in various forms. to And and this is a great example. So in the old days where denialists all had to believe the same thing, um, they were a bit boring. But I think it's one of the things you said Putin, uh, one of the things that phrases I've heard you describe Putin's fundamental politics is... Never be predictable. Always be interesting. There's something about it that's joyous. Yeah. So and, and yeah, hugely and mischievous and, and mischievous yeah. and in a way hugely empowering. So whoever you are, you can become a player. You can come up with a theory. You can see through the lies that other people have swallowed. That's an immensely powerful thing. And I've never heard that analogy with the First World War before, but it strikes me as a really good one. Um, so what do we do then? I mean, it, given the ever-growing sophistication, humour, uh, eclecticism of the denialists, what do we? What do the, what do the truth? I mean, because we're, we're we're dull and we're, we're stuck in the solid, same position. Boring kind yeah. of like yeah, you must. Well, speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank God you're here. Um, no, I, I I mean I think that there is an emerging consensus, certainly within psychology that simply stating the facts is a naive way to change people's minds. I think that that's pretty much established now. And a lot of the more naive enlightenment ideas about rationality, uh, not that rationality and reason don't or can't exist, but the idea that people are necessarily primarily rational reasoning beings is one that is uh, certainly um, in the descendant. So that's the first step. It's interesting that Caroline Lucas, when I was talking to her about this and how do we contract, how do we deal with denialism, she didn't talk about the intergovernmental panel, you know, or the Stern report. She talked about David Attenborough and pictures of plastic. So in a sense, this is it. You you need to counter the denialist narrative with something vivid yourself. So I think there's certainly an emphasis. There's a consensus that we have to engage with people's narratives speak to people in a language that not just in words they can understand, but in a, in, a, in a narrative structure that people can understand. They have to listen and be empathetic uh, as well. And there have been, been projects that have had some modestly encouraging results on this, particularly in the States, uh, and seeing some kind of change. So one example of that is, and I wish I could remember her name, 
there is um, an incredible woman, I think she's based in Texas, who is an evangelical Christian who talks to evangelical Christians about climate change. And she's seeing real results. And the reason she's seeing re real results is because she's, she talks their language. Mm. She, is one of, uh, she is one of them. This is the problem for the green movement generally is that it is identified with a particular kind of politics. I mean, if, if I was leading not the not Green, green not in, not Party, in Germany, well, no, in Britain, yeah, yeah. okay, and, and, and to a certain extent in the US, but, you know, if I was leading the Green Party, I'd be trying to recruit people on the right. I mean, it'd be very hard to do, but you have to show this, this is not about whether you're left or right, whether you're a liberal or conservative, this is a problem for all of us, but all the signals point to one particular political identity. So uh, I, I listened to the Caroline Lucas interview that, that you conducted, and one of the things that struck me about that is, and, and has more generally struck me, is the difficulty of getting people on on the right on board with something that threatens their existence just as it threatens everybody else's existence. Mm -hmm. yeah. To be to be honest, I think that is a function of a cleavage that has happened within the political right over the last few decades, which is that the real action, the real drive, the real energy of right-wing politics is now no longer conservative in any, in any meaningful form. Conservatism in its most literal sense mm. should be a huge ally in environmentalism. But the problem is, is that the political right is very rarely conservative anymore. And you see this with Brexit, the desire to just make trouble, kick things over, start again. I mean, it's, it owes more in a way to Lenin or even Bakunin than it does, than it does to, to Edmund Burke. But I'd like to raise another issue as well, and again, uh, which I talk in this book, which is we cannot assume that even if everybody in the world agreed that climate change, anthropogenic climate change was happening, that everyone would necessarily say, well, and that means we should do something about it. I think one of the areas of naivety in fighting various forms of denial and denialism has been that ultimately, if you could get people to see the facts, they would have the same values. And that's not true. There are people in the world who would say, okay, we should keep our carbon fuel lifestyles as long as possible. And if that means that the millions or billions will suffer, then fine. That's a price we'll pay. In the same way, one of the things that climate change denial is, is there to hide is precisely that argument, which you virtually never see being made. Similarly, Holocaust denial is there to hide the argument not of saying the Holocaust happened and it was terrible, but the Holocaust happened and it was a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's, sorry, I talked for a, a while there, but I think that that's one of the areas where... Well, that, um, well that's very, but that's very helpful because, because I was going to ask you about the relationship between denialism and extremism, because I guess those are two concepts that can very, you often hear being conflated, but they're, they're different. What is the relationship between denialism and extremism in your view? Well, there's no doubt that extremist groups often make use of, uh, of denialism. And that is probably because extremist groups aren't necessarily as carefree in expressing their extremism as you might think. One of the things that's always struck me is the way that even people on the far right and far left sometimes contrive to talk like liberal Democrats mm. in the sense that they are, they are trying less so these days, but certainly in the past, to cloak hatred and, and, and the desire to destroy in, in the language of reasonable science. And I think that's a big problem. I think that the Enlightenment in some ways won, the liberal democracy in some ways won, but it won in terms of the discourse 
It didn't win in terms of what people want and desire in the world. People still want to commit genocide. It's just that unlike two or 300 years ago, you can't openly advocate genocide because we've all bought into a language that doesn't allow us to speak positively of genocide. That's fascinating. So denialism may be a way of, of, of being able to express extremist views without, without using the kind of language that might lead you to being locked up. So the final thing I wanted to ask you, Keith, is, is, is in this world where we feel that denialism is no longer, uh, if it ever was, just an eccentricity, just someone you wouldn't want to sit next to on the bus, but now is a dangerous thing with malevolent forces behind it and which can lead to appalling acts of uh, human violence... Where do you stand on the argue, uh, argument that we ought to be doing more about social media, more about, you know, closing down the, the channels where this stuff gets promoted? I think we have to be realistic about what regulation of social media channels can actually achieve. The whole point of the internet in the first place was it would be resistant to attacks on its basic structure. And you've seen how far-right extremists have often migrated from Twitter to Gab, and when Gab is closed down, which it might be a one day, there'll be, some, there'll be something mm. else, which doesn't mean I don't think that YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter have enormous responsibilities, which I think for the most part they've shirked because fundamentally they, they are refusing to see themselves as what they are, which is publishers. I think that is the, the essential first step is that social media people see themselves as part of the media in, in the literal sense of the word rather than simply agnostic platforms. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know what I feel about this. I, I'm very queasy about restricting free speech. I agree with you that, you know, you can find anything on the dark net or whatever. On the other hand, I think people are lazy. And I think if it's hard to find this stuff out, a lot of people will never even bother in the first place. But anyway, that's a, that's a debate that well, will... That didn't work with pornography. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, we'll leave it on that point. I shall only ask you whether you've heard the joke about the woman who goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, Doctor, I keep thinking I'm in a big, wide river being attacked by a crocodile. And the doctor says, I'm afraid you're in denial. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> I saw that one coming <laughs> several miles away. Thank you very much, Keith. Thank Thanks. you. So, Ian, what did you make of that? I was struck by by several things, but I, I think the the most striking point for me was this idea that you know within these bubbles, the, the flat Earth bubble, whatever it is, uh, these denialist kind of communities, there are many disagreements and and uh, many kind of points of difference, but the debates are conducted respectfully and in, and in good humor. And it's often been observed that people are much better at disagreeing with each other when they have some fundamental kind of thing in common. And part of the reason we, we're getting worse at disagreeing and our arguments are getting more toxic is that we don't have these kind of um, universal institutions, whether that's the, the, the church or, or nation the state. nation state and mm. so on. And, and, and therefore, the disagreements quickly become more personal and, and, and more vicious. And, and it's just fascinating in these like small bubbles. They what what glues them together is that the, the rest of the world is is misleading. They're the only people who see see the truth, or who rather they're the only people who see uh, the falsity of the official narrative. And it's them against the the establishment. And therefore, they feel relaxed about disagreeing with each other because they have this kind of like 
pandemic mm. sort of negative image of, of uh, social sol- solidarity. And um, so I, I thought that's really interesting. And just this general idea that it's not s- what you believe that's important, it's who you believe with. And actually, you see you see that in the way that some of the kind of most effective fake news strategies, they're, they're targeting people who already want to believe whatever it is that you're, you're, you're disseminating, and you're showing that other people believe it too. So you'll see a lot of fake news uh, that sort of that comes from, you know, has its roots in, in, in Russia, will show people on marches or, or will show, you know, we'll use language like, you know, we believe or we think this or, or everyone's... You know. So they're, they're kind of binding people together around these false narratives and intensifying what they already believe. So it's about more about motivation and, and saying, yeah, there are other people out there who think like you than it is about trying to persuade people of one, one point of view or the other. Yeah, and as we were saying, the internet means that you don't have to feel alone in these views. You no. can you can feel yeah. there is, you can genuinely feel there is a we. Yeah, yeah, out there. yeah. You can aggregate uh, minority viewpoints very, very. You can scale up the uh, the, the kind of isolated or, or, or you know really off the beaten track uh, viewpoints into a mass movement very quickly. Well, that's it for this episode of Polarise. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. And we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review in your podcast app. Polarise was presented by me, Matthew Taylor, and by Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA.